0: We just sang some delightfully beautiful songs, didn't we? Oh, How I Love Jesus, The Sweet Hour of Prayer, just to name two of those that we sang, and in the sentiment of them, so very sweet, as it reminds us, among other things, of the blessings we certainly enjoy being Christians. As you probably have already noticed, tonight's lesson will be another installment of our questions and answers that we have from time to time and as always, these are, of course, prompted by the questions that that you ask and share. And in that regard, the questions are never my own, but always those which you've suggested, or at least in some way have indicated that would be of interest to you. It is the case, as always, that I will make uh, at least mention about the little box out there. So if you have questions, you could always maintain it as anonymous but just put, uh, write the question on a piece of paper, drop it in that box, and we'll get around to that at some point in the very near future. I do have a few additional questions beyond what we'll get to tonight, so I already have some in preparation for the next installment. But for tonight, some questions that will take us through some considerations like this. This opening slide is, as always, just a gentle introduction to the, the whole consideration of these questions and answers. It is the case from time to time that your suggestions often are motivating rather large considerations, and that will be to some extent the case tonight. The first question is this one. The direct wording that was expressed in it reads as follows. Will there be anyone on earth that never will hear or know of God? Isn't that an interesting question? I suppose, at least in some regard, you can begin to ponder what the person may have had in mind, whoever wrote it, and not knowing exactly that, I have included a few additional thoughts, maybe besides those that the person at least had in mind. You can see some of them on this slide. The first thing I would suggest in light of this question and some to follow it will be that there can be a rather strong emotional aspect to it. But as always, our our guide must be the Word of God. And so with your Bible in hand, let's look at a few verses that might be of some benefit to us. As I mentioned earlier, a few facets of this that might be worthy of note. The question was worded, anyone. That's inclusive of both adults and children. And so I thought we would address at least the children's part of it first. We all understand the fact that as a child enters this world, that child has the opportunity to quickly appreciate and learn many things from those around whom that child lives. It could well be that a child might live in such a place that the influences would be wholly negative and quite frankly very little directed in a way that would point them to the character of the God of heaven. But it is in that connection I would suggest we keep in mind that that which causes a person to be lost is sin and a child doesn't have any of it. How many times does the Word of God remind us of things like this? Jesus Himself saying in Matthew 18, Bring the little children to Me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 18, verses 3 and 4. On another occasion, Matthew 19, 14, Jesus again speaking about little children who had been brought to Him, and others were displeased that they had brought them. And Jesus said, It's fine. Suffer the little children to come to Me. In that regard, I would perhaps point out one additional text from the Old Testament relating to the king of Tyre in Ezekiel 28, verse 15. There, rather powerfully, the prophet declared, Thou wast perfect in all thy ways, from the day thou wast created, until iniquity was found in thine heart. Now, that was a pagan king, the king of Tyre, and yet it was told to him, you were perfect since the day you were formed in the womb of your mother, until that day that iniquity was found in you, namely the day you chose to sin, the day you willfully and deliberately entered into a set of issues that were not that which the God of heaven would find pleasing. So babies are safe. Youngsters are safe. I suppose the person who wrote the question really didn't have children in mind. But at the very least, it leads us to that point. The rest of the matters on the slide. What about adults? Could it be that there's an adult on this, on this earth somewhere? Maybe even in a variety of places, who in fact, not a child any longer, but would have reached a consideration wherein they are an adult but have never heard of or have any exposure, if you please, to what God would demand of this person? I thought it wise to say, with a qualification or two, it would appear to me the answer is yes. Perhaps you are even aware of some instances where rather remote tribes or rather remote individuals exist in a variety of places, such as the rainforests of Brazil. And there, they have no access to technology, choose not to use it, even if they did, I'm sure. People like that, of course, perhaps would be one consideration. But with that in mind, could I at least invite each of us to, know, to note this. The question said, hear or know of God. Knowing of God is not the same as knowing that God exists. And God demands far more than that, doesn't He? How often does the Bible encourage us that those who know Him, like Jesus stated in John 6, 45, those who know Him will follow Me, Jesus said. That means, of course that that which God demands is just more than a passing degree of knowledge concerning His character or at least His existence. And the next point I'd quickly make is this. To all people willing to at least consider it and think about it, God has given enough evidence to testify that He exists. We know that because Paul said so. In Romans 1 verse 20, Paul in writing said, the invisible things of Him, that's God, from the foundation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead. Please note how it ends. So that they are without excuse. So to every person who's at least willing to give it some consideration, his or her existence testifies there's a God. May I suggest, things just could not have happened and have brought it about the way that we observe it. An explosion could never have happened and organized things the way we now appreciate it. It could, never have been, it could never have happened. But rather, the very fact that you are. Brother James Watkins was always rather fond of saying, look at the back of your hand. The fact that that hand is there indicates there's a being far higher than you that made it and one that overruled the power related to its existence and the nature by which it works. There's a lot of truth by what he said. At the very least, could we not say then to anybody who would again give it some consideration, there should be passing thoughts that, Why am I here? And who made me? And how did things come to be like this? May I suggest in all such cases, there would be a direct testimony that there is a God in heaven. No wonder the Bible so frequently points out matters that will not only be a part of this question, but even some to follow it. Isn't it true that in regard to what causes a person to be lost, it's sin. It's sin. It's not, if you please, a degree or lack thereof of certain knowledge. It's the fact that I'm guilty of something that has to be forgiven. And until and unless that happens, I'm lost. I chose that thought to close that slide. Because doesn't that indicate sometimes how far the human family has moved apart from the will and the blessing of God? Question two will build upon that by leading us to the next slide. Keep this question in mind. It again was, will there be anyone who never heard of or know of God? Because the question continues, if so, will they lose their souls on the day of judgment? Now the person phrased it as a continuation or a second question, if you will, but clearly based it upon the nature of the first one. To be lost on the day of judgment. It's vital that we keep in mind what salvation is. It has to do with that which I've invited you to consider at the top of that slide. Salvation is only available, as the Bible indicates, in one way. One way. All the emotional considerations that might be listed don't change what the Bible says about that fact. And notice it is a fact. It isn't based on any kind of feeling. It isn't based on any other kind of particular consideration. It's fact. Now what is this fact? It is the blood of Jesus Christ. Only that is the agent whereby sin can be cleansed. And any other agent, no matter what to what it may be appealed, would not be effective in that light. For that reason, the next slide, or at least the next thought on that slide, is this one. Does it not then follow that anyone who has not accessed the blood of Christ would thus fall in that category, regardless what reason might there be that they're in that condition, or what other factors they might choose to list? Didn't Paul say to the Romans in Romans 4, verses 7 and 8, Blessed is the one to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Now, who is that? Who is the one to whom the Lord will not account or impute sin? Thankfully, we have the biblical record in the answer to a question like that one. Didn't Paul put it in these words in Romans 8 verse 1? There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. To them who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit we have identified that there is an environment in which one is in Christ Jesus and whoever that is, there's no condemnation to them. That means those not in that condition, thus are subject to condemnation, not being in Christ. To build upon that idea, or at least to continue it, that means that that person who has come to realize the reality, the existence, and to be accounted in relation to sinful nature, and it has not been forgiven, then they are in that predicament of being lost. Now, as the Word of God makes that statement, or at least puts those verses in those positions for us, could I ask this question? If it's the case that ignorance is such that a person could be saved, then why in the world does a church ever need to evangelize? Why in the world pay missionaries to go preach? Why in the world invest any effort to have a gospel meeting? If somebody can be saved in absolute ignorance, the church ought to disband all evangelistic efforts at once. And may I suggest Jesus was a liar. In, Matthew, in Mark 16, He said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. If a person can, can be saved without believing or bab- being baptized, the Lord let me, at, at the very least misled everybody. And quite frankly, He misspoke absolutely. You see, the nature of preaching the gospel is a vital part of what the Word of God demands. And so those souls, wherever they are, That have not obeyed the gospel are in need of not only appreciating it, but understanding that which it demands. Let me interject an additional thought on this point. Perhaps we could have in mind an honest and earnest seeker of the truth. So someone might be quick to say, You mean to tell me that God will condemn this person to hell? Though they were an honest and earnest seeker of truth, they never obeyed the gospel. Could I offer this thought? We have in Acts chapter 8 a record of who apparently was an honest and earnest seeker of truth. He was riding in a chariot between Jerusalem and Gaza. And the God of heaven acted in a powerful way and dispatched a preacher named Philip to go and preach to that man. We all would be quick to say that God is all-powerful. He can do that which is in His will. If there is someone on earth today an honest and earnest person, desirous of hearing the truth and quick to respond to it if they were able to hear it. Could not God direct a radio program to where they would be able to hear it? Could He not direct some other means whereby that information could be shared? If He did it in the case of the Ethiopian nobleman, couldn't He do it today given all the additional technological capacities that there are? I would suggest, then, that we ought not be too quick to say that God cannot act in means to bring honest and earnest seekers of the truth to the knowledge of His will in a variety of capacities. Maybe it is with that in mind. Let's close that slide like this. Paul felt the urgency of preaching, and you and I noticed, as we stated a moment ago, if somebody could be saved in ignorance, then why did Paul go all the way across the Roman Empire and, in fact, bring himself into such places of danger. We all know why. He said in 1 Corinthians nine sixteen, woe is it to me if I preach not the gospel. He would tell the Romans, I'm debtor to preach it, Romans 1, 14. He would say to them that it was his obligation. And today, you and I lovingly realize this message is needful. These two questions have been linked in some interesting ways. The third one follows in some ways from it. It reads like this. This one's a bit lengthier, so let me read it somewhat slowly, and please imagine that which is being described. There was a few years ago a group of 12 Christians and one non-Christian being held by Al-Qaeda. They were told if they denounced to God, their lives would be spared. But if not, they would be beheaded. Each of the twelve would not denounce Christ, and so they were beheaded. Then the non-Christian was asked, and he stated that their God is my God, and he too was beheaded. With that statement of faith and no time to be baptized, what will become of him? Very perceptive question. Certainly a good question in many ways. The reference to Al-Qaeda, maybe that's not as familiar to some, so let me just say a moment... That, that is, of course, a, an Islamic group, and they have rather strong presence in parts of the Middle East. We might remember at least a few years ago that we heard much about them, at least in relation to uh, Osama bin Laden and some of the other events that happened after 9-11-2001. Uh, but otherwise, that group has certainly had a number of occasions of sometimes uh, international appreciation in the years since. The first thing we could certainly say is that the God of heaven will always do what's right. We have that assurance because He's just, and He knows perfectly and thoroughly that which is every element of every situation. But with that said, that which you and I have access to is the Word of God. And if He has told us in the Word of God what His judgment is and what it shall be, then we aren't left to suspect anything is likely to change. Now let's build a few thoughts and at least allow them to point us in some matters of consideration. First of all, I would be quick to say that there would be many, many scenarios very similar to this one. You probably have heard some of them. You may have been speaking with a a Baptist person, and perhaps they are quick to say, well, what if someone dies on the way to the church building to be baptized? Are you going to tell me that they're going to be lost? I'm sure you've heard that one. Or someone else will say, maybe somebody comes to know the gospel while riding on an airplane, and maybe they're going to be baptized when it lands, but it crashes before it lands. Are you telling me that God won't save them? We're not in the hypothesis business. None of us are. What we're in the business of is so conducting our life in a way to where we are in the confines of that which the Bible would describe as salvation. Let's return to the question. Twelve Christians and one non-Christian are being held captive by Al-Qaeda. And we well know that those in Al-Qaeda have very little interest in most cases for the things of the God of heaven. They worship again Allah, And their devotion is to something very different. And so, according to the information this person had, there was an ultimatum given. If you will denounce Christ, if you will in fact profess no allegiance to Him, we'll spare your life. But if you don't, we're going to chop your head off right now on the spot. Now the Christians, as the person said, they all would not denounce Christ. They remained loyal and faithful to Him. And according to the question, the person that wrote it, those of Al-Qaeda followed through with their threat. They chopped their head off. You'll notice on the slide I did ask you to observe something. It is the kind of conviction that comes to a faithful Christian. It is not merely a suspicion. We know that we're saved. 1 John five thirteen testifies you can know that you're saved. And to those washed in the blood of the Lamb... To those who live in covenant relationship with the Lord, they understand the kind of ease and blessing that that consideration brings. But I'd be quick to say that surely one would not wish to risk life or death on the suspicion of something along that line. That I think that I'm in Christ. Or maybe I've had some preacher tell me that I'm in Christ that preacher might be wrong. He might be completely mistaken. And we know today on this earth that there are many supposed preachers of the things of the Lord who do not tell the truth. They tell that which is not the full gospel truth. If a person acts on that kind of information and then makes a decision, their suspicion won't change anything about the actual state of affairs. But back to the question... You'll notice about the middle of the slide that this person identifies, these 12 plus the non-Christian. There's a great deal of difference, as you can see on that slide, between a New Testament Christian and a person, if you please, of the world. Jesus never promised that kind of ease of heart and that kind of ease of mind to those that are not His children. But to His children, He said, "'I will give you rest.'" Matthew 11, 28. And to them, He promised that if you will come over and serve me faithfully, then I will take you over to live with my Father. And in fact, the lesson text that was read in our hearing tonight from Revelation 2, again, may I read it, reads like this. These words were written to the church. Please don't ever forget that. Written to the church at Smyrna, one of the seven churches of Asia. And to that congregation, they were about... And I'm sure they didn't know it before the Lord gave them these details, but maybe they had a sense of some difficulties, but He told them this. I'll start reading in verse number 9. I know thy works, and tribulation, and poverty. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan." Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. May we pause a moment. There was going to be some suffering, and according to the rest of the verse, it was going to happen fairly soon. Exactly what that suffering was, this verse does it go on to say, based on our study of the Roman Empire, and based on our study of some of the features of that part of it, we might make some guesses. But the verse goes on to say, Behold the devil shall cast some of you into prison. So we aren't left to wonder about some of it. No doubt some additional difficulties were going to be present, but he very directly said some of you. Don't you wonder how quickly some of their minds wandered. I wonder if it'll be me. I wonder if I'm going to be one of them. Will it be my husband? Will it be some of my children? He said, some. I take that to mean not all of them. But can you imagine the ominous air that then fell over a group upon hearing it? Let's read on. And that ye may be tried. So notice, this was going to be a rather significant trial. But in that connection, he said, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. That word ten days it would appear is used in a figurative fashion, as often numbers in Revelation are, but it would seem to suggest a rather protracted period, that there was going to be a period of time during which some number of the members of the congregation at Smyrna were going to be incarcerated in prison, at which time the trials would be understood, and in that sense, we all understand what may well have happened because of other verses in the the book of Revelation. Later on in chapter number 6, we read about those who were beheaded. Could that come to some of these people? Maybe. We read about some who found themselves wholly separated from their families, perhaps never to see them again. Was that to be some of them? Perhaps. Let's finish the verse. Even in light of these kinds of matters, it was said, Be... Thou faithful unto death. Even if it requires your death. Even if it in fact demands in that sense that you would act in a particular fashion on behalf of the Christ in such a way that it would mean your life, then that's what would be expected. That's what your loyalty, your allegiance to Jesus would mean. And isn't it true that if you're faithful to the Lord, you're going to a better place anyway. In that light, we certainly would appreciate the statement made about those twelve Christians. If they were in the right relationship with the Lord and that conviction had led them to that, then certainly they left in the faithfulness with which they had lived. But the question went on to make mention of the non-Christian. To pull out that part of the question again, it says, "...then the non-Christian was asked, and he stated that their God, the one they had confessed, was my God, and he was beheaded." The final observation is, with that time or that statement of faith, and certainly no opportunity to be baptized, what's his eternal fate? As I said earlier, salvation, of course, is a matter of being forgiven. And it's a matter of having sins, of course, taken care of and remitted. You'll notice at the bottom of that slide, I ask you to appreciate Jesus Himself had said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. I dare not insert into that additional conditions that the Lord didn't give. And I don't think any reasonable person would. Emotionally, it tugs at one's heartstrings. Doesn't it remind all of us, though, the need to live every day in faith so that one doesn't have to rely upon last-minute matters? Have you ever had discussion with someone who perhaps was hoping for the opportunity of a deathbed repentance? I'm going to live like the devil and sow my oats until then. Then I'll repent on my deathbed. Really? That's your hope? You're living your life under the realization that that's what's going to happen. How foolish. How utterly short-sighted. To suppose that you, one, may have the opportunity of knowing when you're going to die. Very few know that. Accidents, crashes. You may be afflicted with dementia that comes on slowly and you never really know when you cross the point when you no longer are about yourself. But once you have you then find it's too late. We each need to be living faithfully every day, not trying to wait until some appointed future time to live up the pleasures of the world at the moment. Maybe it is in that life, the bottom statement on that slide, is we would all appreciate that what the Lord said would perhaps touch one of those earlier questions. We again will never, ever insert additional statements that the Lord made. We don't have any examples in the New Testament of someone who was saved without obeying the gospel. Not not even one. So in light of that, it would seem that our third question has ended in that way with a very strong admonition to all of us. Let's come to question four. This fourth question is, an, again, a short question. Very briefly asking this, what is the meaning of the word low spelled L-O, in Matthew 28, verse 20? If you already have reference to that passage, beginning in verse number 18, Jesus speaking, this was after He was crucified and after He was resurrected, but to His apostles He said, "...all power is given to me in heaven and in earth," Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things, and whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. So in that statement, the person who asked the question has made reference to that word L-O. And notice it's not L-O-W. We often, I suppose, use that word, speaking as that which is opposite to being high, but this is a different word, L-O. Its meaning, as you can see on the slide, is such that it rather frequently occurs in the New Testament. As far as I was able to determine, 159 times in the King James translation. That means it's not really that infrequent. But its meaning seems to have a slight degree of latitude, but maybe most directly expressed like this. As far as the Greek grammar, it's an imperative that is most often used as a demonstrative pronoun in a given situation. Now, that may sound like a lofty description, and to some extent, you can a little bit set that beside you because the next statement, I think, makes it much clearer. So what does it mean to say a demonstrative pronoun? Well, it often has a degree of emphasis to it. And the next idea is this... Notice some of the other words that sometimes appear as the translation of that Greek word besides the word low. It's often the word see with an exclamation mark after it or the word behold with an exclamation mark after it. Please note the emphasis. It often occurs in a given scenario when a major point is being made, something that should capture your attention. It's almost like, pay attention to this. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Jesus was telling those apostles, Look, you're not going it alone. I know you're going to meet challenges. In fact, He had already warned them in John 16. There are going to be people who want to put you to death just because you're my follower. Now that kind of thing, no doubt, came rushing back to their mind when Jesus Himself was crucified, and yet here they were, His prime followers, And yet, after He was resurrected, He now tells them before He ascends back to heaven, Don't you be afraid. I know there will be times of challenge, and there will be times where threats are made. But I want you to know, as you carry out this message of going everywhere, preaching this message of me, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the world. In your mind, fill in one of those other words, Behold. I'll be with you always, even to the end of the world. See, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the world. No doubt, wasn't that a very comforting thing to hear him say? To know that they weren't going to be by themselves, that they were not going to be without his direction and without his great power. So with that said, let's close the slide. And I chose just a few, a very small number of additional passages, which, if you like, you can give thought to the appearance of this same Greek word. Hebrews 10, verses 7 through 9, where there's a great discussion about the nature of what Christ is doing and has done for us, giving His life and shedding His blood. That word appears in that very context. Lo, I come to do Thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that He may establish the second. Notice, behold, I'm taking away the old law of Moses to put in place the better covenant. Another example, Luke 17 verse 21. You'll find in that passage again a rather beautiful usage of that particular phrase, "Lo." And maybe the final one in Revelation 14:1 that has to do with 144,000 and the blessedness of their estate, but lo that beautiful estate in which they were being near to the God of heaven. Having said all of that, that's their fourth and final question of the evening. And haven't they been very interesting, prompting us and encouraging us in light of our faith? And as we close this lesson, may I again say that the encouragement to one and all would be, Be thou faithful until death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Are you faithful tonight, am I? Maybe you've been prompted to wonder, if I were in some of these situations, how would I have reacted? Do you and I have the confidence that such that if our life was on the line, we could rest assured in conviction with the Christ in whose hands we've placed our soul that He will carefully and calmly take care of it? I'm reminded of Paul, aren't you? The Apostle Paul was certainly one of the greatest and most prolific Christians of the first century era in terms of the efforts and the labor and the dedication he exhibited to Jesus. And he himself, after having been through so much, many times he had been threatened. Many times, in fact, more than once his life was hanging in the balance. And through it all, he had at least survived and lived and went on to preach Christ again. But he could say this in 2 Timothy 1, verse 12, I know whom I have believed. And am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Is that the way you and I feel? Do we know who we've believed? And rest assured he will carefully and successfully maintain it until that final and great day. Tonight, if there be anyone in this assembly who perhaps recognizes that life currently is not being lived as the Lord would wish because of choices you've made, directions in life you've taken, pathways you've chosen to trod. You realize that you can still make changes. You can come back to the Lord that loves you, and you can strive then to live in harmony with Him so that you too have the conviction of which we've read and studied tonight. If that would be the need of your life, don't delay and don't wait. Tomorrow may never come. Proverbs 27.1 reminds us of that rather explicitly. Tonight, if you need to respond in a public way to the gospel's invitation, we're here for you to help, to encourage, to assist. If we could study with you even, we'd be delighted. But if you already know that which needs to be known, and tonight you'd like to make a change, why don't you let that be done? Make that decision, and oh, how easy you can leave this building tonight with the worries and troubles of life taken care of. Because the greatest troubles of all will have already vanished away because the greatest trouble was the sin you were carrying. What a load sin is to try and shoulder it yourself. Neither you nor I have the power to shoulder it ourselves. All we can do is drag it like an anchor behind us. And oh, how much work that requires. Tonight, if you need to come to the gospel's call of invitation, don't delay. Why not come now? Well, together we stand and sing.